Robo Universe with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the Robots Podcast. This will be the first of two episodes covering our visit to last year's Robo Universe 2016 conference in San Diego. Our interviewer Abata de May was there for us and met up with some of the attendees to bring us the latest on robotics technologies that seek to improve the way people work, learn and live. The Robo Universe Conference is the leading professional robotics conference and exposition that promotes practical application of robots and intelligent systems. And in today's episode, we'll hear about these conversations with Den Harburg and Matthew Borsage. Den Harburg, Director of Business Development at Soft Robotics Inc., spoke to Abati about the advance of robotics gripping technology in the agricultural field. Hello, welcome to the Robots Podcast. Uh, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Dan Harburg. I'm the Director of Business Development at Soft Robotics Incorporated. Uh, what do you guys uh, produce at Soft Robotics? Soft Robotics is an end-of-arm tooling company. So we, we make adaptive grippers that can go on the ends of industrial robots and be able to handle products that have a variety of, of different shapes and weights and sizes. Um, so we build the, the tools themselves, and then we also build uh, pneumatic control systems that interface to those tools to provide a really easy package for companies that want to, to automate processes that they can't automate using traditional gripping technology. And can you describe the way your grippers look and the way they function? Yeah, sure. I mean, people often say, uh, and, and our, our, our founding professor will say that the technology was inspired by an octopus. So, it you know, you can kind of see the what looks like a biomimetic structure when you look at the tools. Uh, they, they open and close in a way that a tentacle might, um, both through pressurized air and through vacuum. And they're configured in a variety of different shapes. So we've got two fingers and three fingers and four fingers, five fingers, six fingers, uh, all the way up to the biggest gripper we've built to date is 12 fingers um, for handling big bags of uh, laundry detergents and uh, chicken wings and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, they have, you know, they're, they're an, a pneumatic actuator that has a bit of a, like an accordion-like structure. So when you inflate it with air, it, it wraps around product and, and uses that to, to grip, basically. So um, they, you know, they look a little bit like a tentacle. Mm. And why do some of the grippers have 12 fingers and other ones have two or three or however many it is? Yeah, you know, when we first started the company, we sort of thought... We thought we'd be able to go out and find the super gripper that would be exactly like the human hand and be able to handle all kinds of different stuff. And what we found was that part of what makes a human capable of handling a variety of different things is having two hands. So many things you need to pick with both hands. It's not all just kind of single hand operations. And so as you look at being able to automate picking up a strawberry versus picking up a bag of rice versus picking up a... uh, an apple or a dough ball. Every one of those things has, you know, the requirement is, is different in terms of how you want to grip it. And so that, that's allowed us to, to basically build the 
finger and then allow the finger to be reconfigured into different hands. And so that's why we have two two finger hands up to 12 finger hands. Okay. And do your grippers have sensors on them? They don't. We believe in a kind of a, a dumb gripper. I mean, at the end of the day, our tool is, it responds with air pressure to allow the gripper to wrap around whatever is presented in front of it. And, and we've found that that kind of a system that has no sensor technology inside of it, uh, but just relies on the materials and on its fundamental principles to be able to adapt to the environment, can be significantly lower cost and lower complexity, and also significantly faster. And, and for us, that's allowed us to go into environments where people who've put tactile sensors and grippers and need to slow down and have all this complex wiring, it, it, you know, we can go more quickly into those environments and help automate those operations. And are grippers with sensors at the end, are they slower because there's some sort of latency between getting the data and then computing it and understanding what to do? Sure. Part of it is, part of it is definitely the latency. Another part of it is just the complexity of the system. So if you think about being able to handle agricultural products like we've been discussing here at the event today, uh, you know, if you have electronic sensors in a tool, you have it in an environment where there might be sanitation requirements. Now you have to figure out how do we encapsulate the sensors so that they're food safe? How do we make sure that the electrical wiring running into the tool is totally encapsulated and doesn't present pockets for bacteria to grow and develop? How do we make sure that it can work for millions of cycles without failure? And when it does fail, how can we quickly replace it at very low cost? All of that stuff, if you have sensors in there, the sensors have to get replaced all the time. The wiring has to be figured out. If it's a stupid, simple, simple, you know, stupidly simple system, then that you know, that complexity goes away, and and so the cost stays lower, and the speed can be faster. So that all of that comes together to allow a, a system to to work for a customer. And without feedback, sensorial feedback, how do you how does the gripper know when it's actually grasping the object, and how does it know where the object is? So it knows where the object is from input from vision sensors. So our, our system typically is, you know, works in conjunction with a conveyor tracked vision system or a, you know, 3D or 2D scanning vision system that sees the environment, locates the objects in their X, Y, and Z coordinates, and then tells the robot to go and move to that object and pick it up. Uh, our tool, though, doesn't often know exactly what the object is that it's picking, and so it relies on the principle of the response of the actuator to the object as it's inflating to wrap around it to be able to handle a variety of different objects. So we don't know what we're picking, and, and often we don't know whether we've picked it or haven't picked it. We rely on, on that, you know, the feedback from vision systems um, to, to know where the object is and, and allow the tool to grasp the object. And in today's panel, you mentioned that your, the, the scripper has agricultural applications as well. Um, I was wondering if you could tell me what the what farmers or people working in agriculture expect out of these grippers, and what type of tasks do they expect out of robots in agriculture? The agriculture market's interesting because I think that the the customer base is highly demanding of the products that they're using. If you look at a, a tractor, things people are pulling through the field, equipment that's installed in their production plants and packing plants, this stuff gets it gets beat I mean it gets beat up all the time it's sanitized at the end of the day it's it's washed it's it's got dirt all over it it's being banged around and thrown around so we have to build extremely reliable products and we need things that can last for millions of cycles without any failures 
Um, and so, you know, we we know that th- that reliability has forced us to, to really focus on building products that can, can maintain consistent performance over very long cycles. That, that you know, that for us is, is a combination of cost and reliability that we, we push to, to, to have it, you know, in our products. And if you have these uh, dumb grippers that don't have sensors on it, doesn't that mean you could also just uh, replace the re- replace the grippers, replace the tips, uh, instead of worrying about making it last millions of cycles? We do. So you, you actually need to be able to do both. So you need to have things that can last for millions of cycles because if you consider consider an application where somebody might be picking a product at 100 picks per minute. So that means they're doing 100 pick-and-place operations every minute. If that prod, you know, if that's running consistently for an hour, and then they're running for 18 hours a day, and then seven days a week, you get to a million cycles really quickly. So you need to have products that can last for quite a quite a bit of number of cycles, but then can also be easily replaced and, and serviced uh, as they as needed for either sanitary requirements or wear and tear of the product. If you had something that only lasted for 10,000 cycles, it might not even get through a single day. Okay. And how would you say that farmers would go from having these human-oriented farms um, to more robotics-oriented farms that are more optimized for robots to perform well? There's definitely a complete change in, in, um, change in thinking that's going to be required from the farmers because today, as I mentioned in the panel, everything has been designed and optimized around the availability of human labor to be able to pick and pack and, and harvest and, and all these complex tasks. And so they've tried their very best to drive as much efficiency as they can through the other parts of the system, but while still relying on, on human labor to pack. So a great example of that would be, you know, consider product packaging where peppers today, bell peppers might be packed inside of a Ziploc bag. The way that a human packer gets the peppers into the bag is by wedging one pepper into one side, pushing it all the way to the side, and then taking a second pepper and wedging it into the other side and packing it. That's a task that's almost impossible for a robot to do. If you look instead at a tray where just feeding two peppers to a tray and then the tray flows through a flow wrapper where the, the thing is, is packaged in an automated system, now you start to imagine, okay, that's something that, that we could do and you could actually automate. But the grocery stores, the consumers, and the, the, the processing houses have become uh, reliant upon meeting the demands and requirements of what, you know, what people would optimally like to see in their packaging. And, and that's driven them to say, okay, we need, we need to, to have human workers that can do these very complex tasks to pack into the packaging that the stores expect. And, and so, you know, this whole sequence, if you, if you say we need to automate it, you, you, you probably have to reinvent the packaging, you know, different types of packaging. So that's just one example, but it, it kind of speaks to how the mindsets are going to have to change at every level if you're going to really imagine fully automated packaging and and processing environments so it sounds like when you have these human oriented farms you have uh, humans doing multiple tasks at once they're wedging to one side wedging to the other side they're closing the uh, ziploc bag whereas uh, the move to a more robotic oriented farm would be to break down these tasks even further so break them down into more simplistic um, pieces right now how would you educate the farmers to be able to or the agricultural leaders to be able to break down these 
tasks that we never thought about before into these more simple robotic-oriented tasks. Well, we talked to, a, you know, I, I was visiting a greenhouse grower of tomatoes and peppers just yesterday up in Santa Maria, and, you know, what what he was saying was, look, if we could if we could get consistent packaging across many different types of products, then we could imagine a single robotic station where your tool could handle either a tomato or a pepper or a sweet pepper or any, you know, any of the products that we grow here in our greenhouse, and you could package it into the same kinds of trays. We can start to standardize the type of packaging we have on the output. Now we can imagine bringing in automation. Um, so that's the kind of thinking that's going to be required in the kinds of changes. Today, there are tens of different packaging types for one type of product that a farm might produce, and they've become, you know, they're, they're capable, because they're using human labor, to switch between packaging on the fly and on demand, depending on what their customers are asking for. So there will have to be more standardization, at least in the kinds of machines that are used for packaging, in order for automation to be accepted in that environment. Thank you very much. Sure. And now, let's hear Barty's discussion with Matthew Borsage, founder of SynTouch, with whom he spoke about the biotech sensors they produce and the importance of tactile sensing in gripping technology. Hello, and welcome to the Robots Podcast. Could you introduce yourself? My name is Matt Borzeghi. I'm the co-founder of SynTouch and head of business development. Thank you. Can you tell us what you do at SynTouch? Uh, well, in a small robotics company, you tend to do a little bit of everything. Um, as a as a co-founder, I have an intimate uh, appreciation for the technologies, and uh, in the role of business development, I find that I spend a lot of my time talking with people who have potential applications for our technology. Okay, and what technology do you produce? So, Syntouch is the uh, somewhat immodest uh, in our definition of what we do. Uh, we own the world of touch, uh, machine touch specifically. Uh, which we define as a field analogous to machine vision. Uh, we invented and uh, hold the patents for tactile sensors that can detect everything that a human fingertip can. Uh, we understand the algorithms that are required to process and use that information. And we also have uh, come to understand the uh, applications for commercializing that technology and do useful products. Uh, what are your sensors called and what do they look like? Uh, excellent question. Uh, our sensors are called the Biotech and Biotech SP sensors. Those are uh, green fingertips. So if you see a robot with green fingertips, it's probably ours. Um, and uh, our Pneumatech sensor, which uh, is a different class of sensor, but uh, all three of these are technologies that we developed based on our understanding of human touch. Okay. And uh, can you describe how your fingers work, your sensors? We have two different sensing technologies. The biotech sensors emulate the three main modalities of human fingertips. Um, humans can detect deformations of their fingertip, vibrations that occur uh, as you slide your finger across an object or as the object vibrates, and also the transfer of heat between your finger and an object that you're touching. Our sensors use um, different features in order to replicate each of those senses. The, uh, the finger, the biotech, is a rigid epoxy core with an array of electrodes over it. We've placed a uh, green uh, silicone skin over the top of that core and have a layer of conductive fluid trapped between the core and the skin. 
when the skin is deformed, it causes the fluid layer to deform, and that essentially acts as a uh, fluid-filled strain gauge, causing the array of electrodes to tell you about the deformation of the fingertip. The finger also has fingerprints on it, uh, which are very important for amplifying vibrations as you slide your finger over the top of a material, or our biotac over the top of a material. Those vibrations are propagated through the skin and fluid layer into a uh, pressure sensor that's capable of detecting essentially the hydrophone vibrations of um, the, uh, the skin sliding over materials. And then also, based on humans and like humans, our biotechs are deliberately created to be slightly warmer than the uh, world around them. When you touch an object uh, with your hand, you'll exchange heat with that object. And uh, when our biotech touches a object, it exchanges heat. Uh, that heat is drawn out of the fingertip, typically, and the rate at which it's drawn tells you how the material will feel warm or cool. The Pneumatac is a greatly simplified sensor, which is suitable for uh, extremely uh, dirty and dangerous applications where sensors might become damaged. It's compliant and is able to tell information about um, coming in contact with the object based on a pressure sensor connected to a matrix of foam, essentially. And can these sensors experience all of the same sensations that a human sensor would sense? Uh, yes. So the Biotac and Biotac SP sensors are able to detect essentially everything that a human fingertip can feel and able to detect them more sensitively. Um, the Pneumatac uh, is deliberately designed to have a simplified uh, sensor, uh, more analogous to what you would feel if, say, you put a heavy work glove over your hand. And can you list off all of the different sensations that the sensors can feel? Uh, it's a good question, and actually one of the struggles that we have in the world of touch is that there actually aren't great um, vocabulary for describing the things that people feel. Uh, in the world of color and in vision, uh, we have uh, very good, well-defined, universal terms. Um, you can specify the red, blue, green value of something, and a web developer or a print shop will know pretty much exactly the color that you intend to have. In the world of touch, people tend to use really sloppy vocabulary, um, which is highly subjective, um, or they'll tend to use measurements based on classic engineering techniques that really don't describe the way it feels to a human, i.e. it has a static coefficient of friction blank. Um, so in the world of touch, um, we have come up with a vocabulary that we call the SimTouch standard. Uh, it comprises 15 dimensions of touch, and they're in broad categories, which are as follows. The micro uh, and macro uh, texture of an object, the frictional properties of an object, the adhesive, thermal, and compliance of an object. Um, so you might have noticed there's only five. We do have subcategories within there that describe slightly different things. And um, so do you get feedback from the sensors? In, uh, you, get, you get it in the form of numbers, I assume, numerical feedback? That's correct. And how do you translate that into something that a human could understand? That's a great question. So I really hope that somebody listening to your podcast has a device which you could essentially plug our sensor into and create those sensations. Uh, in the field, we call those either haptic displays or tactors. Um, and it's analogous in the world of vision to saying that we've invented a video camera and we'd love for somebody to have a monitor out there. Um, so there isn't right now a uh, 
corresponding technology where you could just essentially plug the biotech in. Uh, I hope that somebody develops one. Uh, what, what we're doing as an intermediate measure right now is providing those Syntouch standard parameters, those 15 numbers that describe how materials feel, so that if you're interested in knowing exactly how it feels, at least you can have that set of numbers. And we hope that in time that people who are interested in knowing how things feel will be able to uh, grow to appreciate those, just like if I tell you an RGB value of 255, 128, 0, you can have a rough idea about what that might look like. Okay. And uh, what applications are your sensors used in? Uh, great question. Uh, the applications for our sensors are really bimodal, um, they're, and they mirror very closely how humans use tactile information. So there's action for perception and perception for action. So on one side of it, you might want to feel an object because you're interested in manipulating it. You don't cognitively care if it feels warm or fuzzy or smooth or slippery, but that tactile information might be useful as you adjust your grip on the object. So that would be obviously a very useful set of information for a robot. If you think about it, lacking that information in your hand makes your hand very cumbersome. If you've ever had numb or cold skin, uh, and you know how clumsy you feel. That's essentially as best a robot can be without the sense of touch. Now, moving away from manipulation, uh, we have found there's actually an incredible market for being able to quantify how objects feel um, for the world of design and production. If you're producing a, a piece of uh, luxury apparel or a, an automobile and you're trying to do it efficiently, or the next consumer electronic device, uh, touchscreen or tablet, and you want it to have a particular feel, you would like to be able to define that. And while you can do that right now for color, uh, the only way to do that with uh, texture or feel is to use our Syntouch standard. And uh, since many of these companies lack the uh, vocabulary to describe touch, and uh, maybe they're not very knowledgeable of the Syntouch uh, library, mm -hmm. um, how do they portray to you what they want from the touch? Uh, for example, these fine luxury goods, how do they portray to you exactly what they want their product to feel like? Talking with companies and learning about their internal vocabulary has been a very interesting experience. Uh, I have literally sat in the boardroom of a major automotive manufacturer and listened to a debate over what the word soft meant. Um, to an engineer, soft might have something to do with the spring constant of the material or maybe its viscoelastic properties. Um, to a designer, soft might mean uh, it should feel fuzzy, like a puppy's belly. That's a, that's a quote I've actually heard. Um, every, every group that we've talked with has had their own internal vocabulary. Uh, every industry has had some terms that they bandy about, but there's actually very little consensus over what the words mean. So one of the jobs that I have is to go into a company and learn what they call various physical attributes that the material has and then help them map between what they've been calling it and what we can quantify objectively and repeatedly for them. You can use an analogy from the world of color. Uh, we have very specific understandings about what red and blue and green are, certain wavelengths of light. Um, but if we didn't, uh, we might have trouble if, say, when I say red, you thought crimson and somebody else is picturing maroon. Uh, very different shades of red. Uh, that you can't use to then define a color without having some misunderstandings. 
Yeah, now you spoke today on the agricultural panel in the Robo Universe. Um, could you tell us some agricultural applications of the sensor? Yeah, the agricultural applications for tactile sensing in uh, ro robotics and manipulation essentially comes down to do you need to pick something uh, that's fragile? Uh, if there's a piece of produce that needs to be handled, uh, which will become damaged by essentially handling it inappropriately, we have a sensor that can be mounted on essentially any robotic gripper and provide a sensitive, gentle touch. Um, yeah, on the panel today, I also pointed out that it's entirely possible that a lot of applications can be done without this technology. And personally, one of the things I find interesting about agriculture is how diverse the uh, the products and the crops that need to be handled are and the variety of ways that people are looking at replacing uh, the human hand when trying to interact with those materials is, is really remarkable. And uh, how, does, how is your company dealing with the um, very expensive and slow process of iterating on the, the engineering design? Uh, working with uh, robotics and with hardware can certainly be a lot more difficult at times than uh, purely software applications. The uh, focus of Syntouch has been decided uh, since our inception to remain on the world of touch, and uh, I think we've done an excellent job on that. Um, the implication of that is that we focus on something that we know is useful to humans. Uh, we know a human with the sense of touch is capable of doing amazing feats of manipulation and uh, object identification. And we know if you remove that sense of touch, the human will become very clumsy and unable to understand what it is that they're interacting with. So instead of trying to follow each of the trends in either the market or the other technologies that's available, uh, we've continued to refine our uh, technologies and make them uh, more durable and more inexpensive and uh, more robust in terms of the information that they provide. And if there is utility in a human hand and a human hand's sense of touch, um, when the other markets essentially have settled, uh, we will have the technology that we can provide. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that's it for today. But tune in again in a fortnight when we'll have more interviews from Abati's visit to RoboUniverse. And if you can't wait that long, simply visit our website at robohub.org for all our past episodes and loads more about robotics. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Robo Universe with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.